in chapter 5. Ephesians in chapter 5, please. And I want to read right now just verses 15 through 7, I'm sorry, through 21. Verses 15 through 21. I won't get to all of that today, but just to set it up for us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, please. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Uh, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is uh, debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody uh, to the Lord with with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, we've been working our way through this, this letter. And as we, as, we, as we come to this particular section, in fact, this particular paragraph, this particular group of verses, um, we see that Paul's sort of summing up for a minute. And then he's moving on uh, to, 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 to what else he has to say. So he's summing up. He's telling us. He's told us some things. And, and now he's going to, given what he's told us, continue uh, to lay out something. And, and this section is how we're to live. How we're to live, you see. You see it in verse 15. He uses this, this word walk. Look carefully then how you walk. And we know in the scripture that expression walk is an expression of how we're to live, really. And, and you get, it's a good, helpful word because it's telling us that we're moving. It's telling us that we're walking. Our lives are walking, it's moving, it's a journey, you see. We're on this. And he says that we're to, we're to walk. But we remember that he's telling us that we're to live this way, we're to walk this way because of something that's happened. And so beginning in chapter 1, he begins to lay out what God has done for us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're to live based on what has happened, you see, uh, to us. Uh, He begins in chapter 1 by telling us about his own plan, that we would be holy and blameless in his sight, that through Christ he would redeem us, that is, free us from the bondage that holds human beings, which is because of our sin and our rebellion against God. But he frees us from that, both from its penalty and its power, so that we can really, we can live. And then he seals us, with his spirit, which means the very presence of his spirit, God's spirit upon us and in us, is that guarantee that we really do belong to him. Guarantee that all of this is really true and guarantee that it will come to fruition. Um, and so a day will come and we'll see it. And his spirit now is upon us as that living, if you will, guarantee. And then we know that he's, we've been saved by grace through faith. It isn't something we've done, but something God has done for us in Jesus. That We don't boast in ourselves. No need for that. How foolish would that be for us to boast in ourselves as human beings? Uh, we can boast in God because he's the one who's made us and gives us life, even eternal life, even this, this salvation. And now we're to live, we're to walk in such a way uh, that we um, uh, uh, get after those good works which God has prepared for us for us to do. We, we know then, too, that what he's done is not only reconciled with 
us with himself, but also reconciled us with each other. And so now we are this community of people reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, who are to live out and actually be light, actually be a manifestation of the wisdom of God and how he's making for himself a people uh, to worship him, to love him, to follow him, that will be, in fact, uh, his. And now we're living out the ethical implications of that. That is to say, because of, of what has happened, now we're to live in a particular way. And in, in chapter 4, verse 1, this whole section is, is, uh, begins with this topic sentence. How's that for all you English majors? I think that's a good topic sentence. Um, he says, I urge you, therefore, uh, prisoners uh, for the Lord, to walk, to live, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. God's called us. Something from him to us. It's a calling to follow him and to live after him, you see. And so he says, now I've called you. And in my calling, I've worked in you in such a way by the Holy Spirit to break this bondage to rebelling against me. And so now I've called you to follow me. I'll give you the strength. I'll give you the wisdom. Now follow me. And so he says, I want you now to live worthy of that calling. Don't make yourself worthy. Christ has made you worthy. And now, but live out a life consistent with who I've called you, who I'm making you, who I've made you to be. That's the excitement about this particular section. And so he's saying, I'm contrasting with what it was like before you were called and after. And we see this uh, pretty clearly. For instance, in, in, in chapter 2, in verse 2, I'll begin with verse 1. And he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. So, so you once walked in a, in, in a way that you were actually dead. That you weren't alive to me, he says. That you were dead, that your transgressions, your sins, um, enslaved you to a life really of death and that would lead to death. He said, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He said, and he includes himself, he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, who were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. You see, he's saying you once walked this way, but something's happened. And so he says, don't walk this way. And so he ends this passage in verse 10 by saying this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so he's saying to us, because of what I've done, don't walk this other way anymore. You once lived that way. Don't do that. I've prepared a, another way for you to live. And, and the new way that I've prepared for you to live is to live in this way of doing that which is good. He said, now, now live that way. And then I, I have already read this one to you from chapter 4. In verse 1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk or to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then in verse 17 of chapter 4, he, he puts it like this. He says, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk or live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. And therefore, they become callous, giving themselves up to sensuality and greedy, uh, greedy to practice every kind of impurity and all of that. He says, but that's not the way you learn Christ. And so he says, he says, I want you to walk this way, not the way you used to walk. That's what he means by like the Gentiles, the Gentiles. He says, don't walk like that. Don't live like that. I want you to live this new way. You didn't learn Christ. You didn't learn Christ that way. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And he says, he says I want you now to walk in love. That's how you're to live. Why? Because you're to imitate God. Why? Because you've been created in his likeness. So, so you need to live that way. You need to live in such a way that when people see you, they say, God. People see you, they go, oh, I, I have a sense about who God is because I'm seeing one who's in his likeness, who's been created in his image, you see, that was broken because of sin, but now restored, you see, because of Christ. And then, where is it? I think verse 8, well, verse 7, he says, Therefore do not become partners with them, that is, those who are doing, uh, living impurely. But verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, war- in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So no longer walk in darkness as if you don't know God. Don't walk in darkness. But now you're light, you see. You know him, you see him. Verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so he says, so no, walk this way. Don't walk that way. Walk this way. Now, in the passage I read, as I mentioned, just by way of confession, I'm not, I, I know it's only a few verses I read, but it's going to take us about three weeks to get through this little bit because it, it really necessitates that, I think, and maybe even longer, but... I won't try your patience any more than that. But um, so I'm I'm going to give a shot at at just the first couple of verses in this section, 15 and 16 and maybe 17. But he says, now, here's how you're to live uh, now. And he says, first of all, you need to live carefully. He says, look carefully then how you walk. He says, I want you to look carefully. Be careful. Be watchful how how you live this out. Keep your eyes open. Make sure you're really seeing what's really there. Don't miss it. In fact, in other parts of the scripture and other translations, uh, this little expression, be careful, uh, is translated, take heed. You know, I, as a kid, I always thought, I didn't know what that meant. But, but, but I, I knew it was important. You know, it's <laughs> take heed. Whoa, okay, look out. Uh, beware, you know. But it's really to see that which is really there. So look carefully then um, how you live, how you, how you walk. And he says we, we're supposed to live wisely. To live not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. He says, I want you to make sure that you understand that there's real evil in the world. And the days in which we live now are days in which there really is evil. And this is one of the times in the scripture that we see a distinction between what the Bible calls, Jesus used this expression often, 
this present age and the age to come. This present age and the age to come. Now, bear in mind that one of the things that we know because of the fact that Jesus has come and his spirit has come is that the age that is to come has intruded upon this present age. So the age that is to come, and that is the age that will come when Jesus returns, that is the age for believers at least, where there will be a new heavens and a new earth and will dwell forever, if you will, uh, in the very presence of God. And that's the age to come. That's what the scripture describes as the age to come. And we have a sense of that because of the coming of Jesus and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit and because of the presence of the church even. We have a sense of the age to come in us. But we live, obviously, still in this, in this present age. We notice this, for instance, in Ephesians in chapter 1. Paul uses that expression, verse, where is it? Um, well, it's a discussion of, of, of Jesus and that we're to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and he talks about Jesus being exalted. So verse 21, so he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, you see. So, so Jesus is exalted and ruling and reigning, not not just in this age, but particularly, if you will, in the, in the age to come. Um, and we see the age that is now in verse 2 of chapter 2. I read this a minute ago. He says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, as the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this, this present age, if you will. And then in chapter 6 and verse 13, he writes about this present age in the same way. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all that, to stand, to stand firm. Other passages just, just quickly about this concept of the present age and the age that is to come. And Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians in chapter 1. He says this, verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. And so again, the reason Jesus came was to deliver us from the present evil age. And he did that, but he didn't take us out of it. Here we are still in the midst of this this present evil age. So, so he says, now listen, something's happened to you. You've been delivered from this present evil age. You've been freed from it in terms of the sin of it. So now, live like that. But be careful because you're in it in this present evil age, if you will. Uh, Peter writes of the same kind of thing in Second Peter in chapter 1, uh, verse 3. His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. 
Now, when he says we become partakers of the divine nature, it doesn't mean we become God. It simply means that we're then created in his likeness. But he says this, that because of the work of Christ and his spirit's work within us, we've escaped the corruption that is in the world. And so, as Paul writes here to the church in Ephesus and to us as well, he's saying, be careful now about how you live because we live in an age that's evil. Don't fall back into this evil, but rather now, I want you to live wisely. So what's that mean? Well, he's going to lay that out. He's going to tell us that we need to make the best use of our time. He's going to tell us that we're to know what the will of the Lord is. And he's going to tell us that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then after telling us all that, then he's going to talk about marriage and he's going to talk about family and he's going to talk about work. And he's even going to be talking about what it means to live in a world where there is real evil and how we're to deal with that. So that's what's to come. But before he gets there, he says, be careful, watch out. Live wisely, know what the will of the Lord is and be filled with the Holy Spirit. That'll take us a couple of weeks to work our way uh, through all of that. What does he mean that we're to live not as unwise, but as wise? Now, he's writing to believers, and so as he writes to believers, he's in a sense saying, you are now wise. You were once unwise, but you are now wise. Why? Well, because in contrast to what the Bible calls the fool, you know God. Remember what the psalmist writes in Psalm 14 about the fool. The fool in the scripture can mean a number of things, but rarely does it mean unintelligent. The fool in the scripture is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. See, the, the fool lives as if there is no God. So you can be brilliant and at the same time be a fool in the biblical sense. Or you can be fairly unintelligent and be wise in the biblical sense, you see. So the great danger is being a fool because you live as if there is, there is no God. You remember... The story that Jesus told, he said there was this rich guy. And, uh, and he was so rich, he looked at all the stuff that he had. And he said, I need to build bigger barns for my stuff. And then I, I need to live happily ever after. I'll eat, eat drink, and be merry, you see. And, and then Jesus said, you know, you know what happened? That night his life was required of him, which means he died. He said he lived unaware. There is a, a God. He thought that life consisted in the abundance of his possessions. But then he died and had to leave it all. And, and then he realized life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. And Jesus said he, he was rich in things, but not rich towards God. That means that. We, didn't have, we don't have a lot of stuff so we can buy God's favor. But he says he didn't know God, you see. He didn't know God. He, he didn't know the richness of God. He didn't know God richly, deeply. And, and so he was a fool. 
in his life. He didn't live wisely. And then for me at least, the most, one of the most penetrating, gut-wrenching, heart-stabbing uh, sentences uh, in the Bible. Uh, Jesus said, What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I don't know about you, but that just sends chills up my spine when I, when I hear that. Because you go, yeah, yes, of course. You know, one of the most um, grievous uh, passages in the scripture, Revelation 18, it's, it's about the second coming of Jesus and all that. And, and what takes place then. And, and the grief of the merchants. And the grief of the kings. Right? And the Greeks of all those, the grief of all those who, who put their hope in the world, you see. And, and it's all gone. And, and they, they're, on the one hand, they're surprised. Like, wait a minute. This was what life was all about. This is what, this is what I lived for, the merchants. This is what I sold and built and accumulated. The kings, these were my kingdoms. This is what I ruled over. This is how I expanded my borders. I, I thought that was what life was all about. And, and, and then it's gone. And they go, right? And they, they, they grieve. They lament the loss of their life, their loss of their identity, the loss of everything. Why? Because they didn't get it. They didn't see that there was something beyond all of that that should inform how we understand our lives. And, and it's God. And they, they missed it, you see. And, and, and just the grief and the sadness. Read that chapter sometime. Don't read it before you go to bed. But, but read it in the morning. Uh, and let yourself dwell on it throughout the day or you won't sleep, I trust. But it's one of those, those passages. What does it Prophet a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his his soul. But we've been made we've been made wise as believers. There's something that we that we know. Turn if you have a Bible or listen if you don't. First Corinthians and chapter one. First Corinthians and chapter one. And verse eighteen. The apostle writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He says, so on the one hand, people who are perishing, look at the cross and they, it's just, they say, that's just foolishness. That's folly. I, I don't get it. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, verse 20. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? There's a sense in which God is saying, come debate me, if you will. But has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, that is, its own wisdom. It pleased God through the folly. Paul is being a bit sarcastic here. So it's satirical. If it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, which are worthy of this calling, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom 
of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God stronger than men. Christ is the wisdom of God, you see. And if you're a believer in Jesus, then you know the wisdom of God in Christ. And what's that wisdom? Well, the, the wisdom comes is, how is it that a human being who's rebelled against God, how is it a human being could ever be reconciled to God? What's the problem? If, if the problem's sin, and if God is holy and just, and as one who is holy and just can't just sweep that under the rug and realizes that this rebellion and sin requires judgment and justice, what are we ever to do? So really we need two things as human beings to live in the presence of God. Two things as we are presently now. One is we need righteousness. We need to be righteous. How can you stand in the presence of God if you're unholy? And so we need holiness. We need to stand in the presence of God righteous and and holy. And second, since we aren't, we need forgiveness. And so uh, what do we do? Well, in the wisdom of God, he sent his son. He said, here's the way. Here's the real way. My son will come and he'll take on human flesh and he'll live his life as one who is a man. And he'll do it for you. In other words, he'll live out his life for you in your stead so that every time he obeys, it's as if you have obeyed. And so his righteousness then will be imputed, will be given to you so that I'll see you in him and thus I'll see you righteous, blameless as my own son. And then he'll take upon himself the guilt of our sin and he'll pay the penalty for it so that God can be just, that is righteous and holy in himself, not just overlook evil and sin, but he can be just because it's been dealt with, the penalty's been paid. And then also the justifier, the one who declares righteous, all those who trust in his son. Who's smarter than that? I mean, what kind of wisdom is that? I mean, I mean, who could come up with that plan and actually execute it and actually, actually do it? That's why last week as our profession of faith, we, we read um, from the Heidelberg Catechism, an ancient, or not ancient, but uh, centuries old uh, uh, um, catechism of the faith. And you remember the question was, how are you right with God? And the answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. It says, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against the commandments of God. I mean, we read the commandments of God, we take them to heart and we go. I've broken those. And even though I'm still inclined toward evil, we look at our, our lives and we said, still. Look at what I've done and what I've thought and what I've said and what I didn't do and what I didn't say. And. Just heap all of that on us. But then nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, just his kindness, his goodness to us. God grants 
and credits to me that he puts to my account the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. So he takes all that is true of the perfect Christ and puts it upon me. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And all I need to do is receive this, accept this gift with a believing, with a believing heart. And people say, it sounds too good to be true. It is too good. <laughs> but it is true. And so that's what we receive. That's the wisdom of God. And so in a sense, Paul is saying now, you're actually wise because you know this. You're actually wise because you believe this. You're actually wise because you receive this. You understand the wisdom of God as expressed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gift by his spirit. Open your eyes. You see it. He says, now you're wise. Now live wisely. Live like that. Always live wisely. Live like that. And we realize then that the person who is wise is the person, as the scripture says, who lives in the fear of the Lord. Remember what the proverb says. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Or to say it the way the scripture does, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You begin living wisely when you fear the Lord. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're afraid of him, though. I mean, he is God after all. There should be a little bit of woo in there. But it means you respect him. One old um, theologian, Charles Bridges of a, of a century or two ago, put it like this. He said, what is this fear of the Lord? It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's will. You see, this fear means I see you're, that you're God and I'm not. And so I honor that. I respect that. I bow before you in that. It's not like the fear that a student should have for his or her teacher. It isn't unlike the fear that a, uh, an athlete should have for his or her coach, you see, to say, you, you, I'm just the student. I'm just the You're the professor. You're the coach. I'll, I'll submit. I'll, I'll bow to you. I'll, I'll learn from you, you see. Well, this is God, so it's... a Entirely different sphere, and we're us. And so the fear of the Lord means I look to him and I go, okay, you're God, I'm not. Please teach me. I will learn. That's why James, uh, in his epistle in the New Testament, has a little expression somewhere. James chapter 3, verse uh, 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is always comes from meekness where you yield to wisdom which is wiser if you will than than you and as i mentioned a while ago wisdom isn't isn't just simply being smart there are smart people who are unwise and there are wise people that may not be very smart but they know god you see it's a matter of iq it's a matter of dependence upon God. One theologian, J.I. Packer, defines wisdom like this. He says, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. So wisdom is the power to see and inclination to choose 
the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. So wisdom is essentially moral. It's being able to see what's best, what's good, what's right. And then how to get there in the best way. It's practical, you see. King Solomon, remember when he asked God for wisdom, you remember why he asked God for wisdom. It's 1 Kings chapter 3. When Solomon asked God for wisdom, and, and, and again, did he just want to know more than everybody else? Or what? And he, he, says, he put it like this. And he said, give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern uh, like this? And who's able to govern this your great people? He says, real wisdom is that ability to be able to discern what is good and what is what is evil? He says, so give me, give me that. In fact, when God gave his law to his people, it was to make them wise. It wasn't to restrict them, but actually to free them, to live wisely. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5. He says, see, I've taught, you, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, that whenever we call upon him, he hears. What great nation is there that has his statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you. His laws to make us, to really make us wise, you see. So the apostle says, all right, how do, we, how do we live wisely? Well, this first, and this is probably all I'll be able to get to today. He says, I want you, he says, he says if you're living wisely, then you're able to make the best use of time. To make the best use of time. The wise person's able to make the best use of time. Why? Because we know what's really valuable. We know what's really important. We won't work to gain the whole world and lose our own soul. We won't build bigger barns because we think that life consists in the abundance of our possessions. But we'll make the best use of time. That Literally, some of you may have learned this. It could have been on some cross stitch as you were growing up or on a napkin holder or something in your kitchen. And it was just this little expression, redeem the time. Right? Redeem the time. Uh, buy back the moment. And, and what it really does mean is, is, is take the best use of every moment, of every opportunity that comes your way. Take it to live in such a way that shows that you really are a follower of Christ, that you really get it, you really understand. To live in the meekness of this wisdom and to do good, therefore. So, so make use of every opportunity uh, to do good. If I may, I want to read a bit from... Uh, uh, a preacher um, from the 19th century, a French Reformed preacher, Adolphe uh, Menard or Minot, depending on which website you go to to ask how to pronounce French words. Uh, but uh, uh, fascinating man. 
It was probably in his day, 19th century, his day, mid-1800s, in his day, it may have been uh, the most well-known Protestant, at least, pastor-preacher in all of France. But when he was 53, uh, he became very sick, very ill, died six months later. So sick that he had to take to his bed for those months. Thought he was going to die at any time, didn't really know. And so on Sundays... Uh, rather than the hundreds and hundreds that he preached to, typically, uh, on Sunday morning, a few people, all who could fit into his room, would come and he'd preach. And all those messages were transcribed in this little book called Farewell. And so here we have a dying man. And as some old preacher said, preaching to dying men. It was clear he was dying. The rest of them thought, well, maybe not so much today, but... It's always true that preachers preach as a dying man to dying men. And so he writes, in just a couple of paragraphs or a couple of chapters, I won't read the whole chapters, but a couple of passages that relate to this idea of making the most of every opportunity. This chapter is entitled, A Dying Man's Regrets. Subtitle, The Use of Time. So here's a man well-respected, great theologian, knows God, end of his life, has the grace to know it's the end of his life, and he begins to reflect. So he talks to people. He says, it's written, redeem the opportunity. This is a more exact rendering than the received one, redeem the time. Redeem here doesn't mean to buy back over again, but to buy with the obvious opportunity that God furnishes for the days are evil, which means that the opportunity once lost may never come again. The good use of one's time is an idea so vast that it frightens the soul. In other words, if you just said, oh, make the best use of your time, you go, that's too big a task. Time, it's good. So he says this. He says, there is something more modest about this thought. Seize the opportunity. Seize eagerly the opportunity that God provides as they come from his hand. With a lot of opportunities, while, uh, what a lot of opportunities are lost through idleness, unbelief, negligence, through selfishness, self-will, indecision, attachment to sin, and through a thousand other causes. This is what opportunities are lost because of those things. He says, I don't need to dwell upon them. There's no Christian whose heart doesn't condemn him already. Or his conscience doesn't trouble him at this point. And so he says, I'm not going to heap any more on you. you. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you know life. He says, so, so then why should we do this? Why should we make every use, use of every opportunity for good? He says, first, we must be pervaded by the thought that we do not belong to ourselves. He says, make the use of every opportunity because we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And he gives us these opportunities, you see. He says, first, we must be pervaded by the thought that we don't belong to ourselves and therefore our time is not ours any more than the rest of what we have. Our time belongs to God. And consequently, we must look to God to ascertain what we have to do to fill the time which he gives us. And we must respond to the opportunity, opportunities he presents to us. He says, there are opportunities God presents all the time to us to do good, to reflect his son, 
to show that we belong to him. He says, well, we'll do it. Make the best use of every one of those opportunities. And then he says, second, let us always be diligent in seizing the opportunities which God holds out to us. They will not fail us. And we shall find before us a life woven of good works, prepared and ready for us to walk in them. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 that I read a little while ago. Which are linked together and lead on from one form, uh, uh, from one from the other so easily that our lives will be made up entirely of good works and obedience. And consequently, as we were just saying, joy and peace through the Holy Spirit. He says, if you do this, you see, this is a life of bondage. This is a life of joy. This is what you were meant to be. And so that's why Christ came to redeem us, so we could be the very ones we we're meant to be, to be real human beings, if you will. He says, for this, we must have our eyes constantly open and turn toward God, saying to him, Lord, here I am. What will you have me to do? And when we have done one thing, Lord, what will you have me to do now? And so on, without a single interval elapsing unfulfilled with the obedience we owe to God, God will furnish us accordingly with the means of doing an immeasurable amount of good. For no one can estimate the good which might ever enter into the life of a single man who is disposed as, as a witness and is disposed as our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, this is a good life. And his final prayer in this section is this. He says, my friends, none of us knows how long God may still leave us here, but we do know the time he's already given us and the reproaches we deserve for the use we've made of it. But let us lay hold of what is still before us, whether strong or weak, sick or in good health, living or dying. And remember, this is coming from a guy who's laying in bed. It looks like he's going to expire any time. And he's saying, I can't wait to find the next good thing I can do, even in this circumstance. And then quickly, just this chapter, the title itself is enough to leave you pondering. A dying man's regrets preoccupation with petty interests. Right? Preoccupation with petty interests. And he goes on to say, I, I don't mean little things. It's not little things that are petty. Little things can be very significant, you see. In fact, most of the things we do are little. It might be making a bed. It might be making a meal. It might be cleaning up. It might be reading this or saying that or helping someone do this or helping little things you see driving someone who needs a ride here but little things but, but he doesn't mean those are petty at all it means the petty things are the things that are wasteful that are wasteful you see and so he says what does he say he says made in the image and likeness of God we should be his followers and in the smallest concerns as well as the greatest be always dominated by the thoughts of God's, by the thought of God. How much easier it would be to find a sincere man, I mean true Christians, who if they came to die would commit their souls into the Lord's hand and at heart are waiting upon him, yet who let themselves be distracted by and preoccupied with petty interests, the love of money, the thirst for human glory. Jealousy of a rival, a passionate desire for personal success, an ambition for things outside the way which God has marked for them. They're hindered by impatience with hardships, 
by repugnance for humiliation in the cross. They experience sharp indignation over a word, perhaps a word misinterpreted or an insignificant little happening, which will afterwards perhaps even in an hour or so leave no trace. He says, you know, even the greatest among us, we face God. How many of us don't have this list already of petty things? Oh, that we wouldn't, he says. He ends, this is my desire for you, my ardent prayer, and it's also the prayer which I beseech you to make to God for me, so that during the time which is left to me, whatever it is, I shall think only of living for the glory of God and for the good of my fellow man. And this will be to live at the same time for my own eternal glory. Paul goes on to say that we need to know what the will of the Lord is. We need to be filled with the Spirit. But alas, that will be next week. Let's pray. Father, hmm, what shall we say? We desire to be those who are wise, who look carefully at the world in which we live, Look carefully at our lives. Look carefully at what Christ has done. And then take every opportunity to do that which is good. To bless people. And to speak words that don't corrupt, but rather give grace. To love as we've been loved, you see. So please, God, work in us that we may live wisely for you have made us wise because we know you. Work that in us, I pray. In Jesus' name.